Hello, listeners. My name is Tashara, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Scott Beiser. Scott is the CEO of the independent investment bank Hulahan Loki. He previously led Hulahan Loki's infrastructure services and materials practice with specialized expertise in investment banking services for engineering and construction businesses. Scott holds both a bachelor's and master's in finance from California State University, Northridge. Scott, how are you doing today? Very good. And how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. So let's get started. Could you please tell us more about your journey to becoming the Handloki CEO and how the firm has grown with you? Sure. So born and raised in Los Angeles, California, I went to a, a, a university uh, locally and I thought I always wanted to be a security analyst, which at that time required me to go to New York City, which I wasn't prepared to do. So I ended up joining a small firm I'd never heard of called Houlihan Loki, Howard and Zukin, and they did analysis of companies instead of securities. So I thought close enough, I'd be analyzing uh, companies. And so I, I joined a firm uh, that was, you know, relatively small and unknown at that did a lot of just kind of generalist analytical work. And eventually uh, with that, I, I started one of our early industry groups, as you mentioned, the infrastructure and services and material group. So became a little bit more of a specialist in that. And then probably maybe 15, 20 years or so in my career at Hurlihan Loki, I started to take on some more management uh, roles. I've been either the uh, CEO or co-CEO for about 20 years now. And uh, really that's been my evolution as kind of the generalist to industry specialist from kind of client banker to, to management. And it's been uh, quite a ride for the almost 38 years now that I've been there. Great. And a very interesting and inspiring journey for many of us. I'm sure that no two days are alike on your job, but could you tell us more about what a typical day would look like for you? So first of all, I'd say you kind of, you go in or expect a day to try to accomplish 10 things. Uh, if all goes well, maybe you get four things done. And then another 10 new ones uh, come in. So I think that's one of the challenges and the excitement. It's different every single day and no two days, as you mentioned. I mean, having said that, I mean, today I probably view the, you know, different things in the way I would, uh, you know, split my time. There's a, some amount of us close management, whether it's, it, it, we are a people business. So it's dealing with all the different issues that come up with now a, you know, firm a little over 2000. Part of the time is spent on strategy, always trying to think what is the next both strategic and tactical move the, the organization should take. Part of the time since we've been public now is spending time with the investors, both our employee investors, if you might, and the external investors. And some of the time is, is still spent with clients, albeit the amount of time I spend with clients is much, much less than, you know, what I was doing 10 or 20, 30 years ago. Great. And a very interesting mix of activities throughout the day. And sort of on another note, given the unprecedented times that we're in right now. Could you explain how this has impacted Houlihan Loki's different practices and what are some of the key challenges that you've had to overcome? So, you know, every year, every couple of years, there's always some different challenges. I think in the last couple of years, we immediately focused on like almost everybody else. What did this pandemic mean? We migrated very quickly to being, uh, you know, concerned about the health and safety of our employees. We had them start working remotely, literally within probably the first, you know, couple of days of March of 2020. I think it was very successful to, you know, find out kind of electronically, if you might, from an IT and telecommunication standpoint, what you do. What I would say was safety, make sure we provided the tools then for our employees to continue to do work. And then he had to uh, deal with the fear factor that I think people had, which was, was the uh, company going to go out of business? What was going to happen to the marketplace? Would I still have a job tomorrow? 
know, fortunately, uh, we've done very well. In fact, uh, arguably better uh, since the pandemic and pre the pandemic. So we never went through any rounds of layoffs. We effectively had jobs for everyone, whether it was the most senior managing director or whether it was a office services, administrative assistant. And then we started to figure out what could we do maybe even better from a, a virtual work environment. And somewhere I'd say in the last three, six, nine months, you know, there's been a gravitating towards some level of coming back in the office. At this juncture, we are not a, everybody show up like they did before. And I'm not sure we that. We're kind of in a, uh, a hybrid type of environment. And uh, I think we've been very fortunate. The health of our employees are very good. We did involve some other incremental medical and health officials to provide some, you know, input and guidance, not only for our employees, uh, but their significant others, their family members, their kids, et cetera. And I think that's kind of kept the, the mental disposition as good as possible. And so, like I said, fortunately, the employees have been in generally good shape and we've been able to continue our, our work with our clients in the, you know, both a virtual and an in-person uh, world that's continued to drive the business. Great. So our uh, business as usual and then some more. So Scott, congratulations on completing Hulahan Logie's integration of GCA Corporation. For those unfamiliar, could you tell us more about this acquisition and the impact that you envisage this to have? So we at Hulahan Loki, I think, have been very open-minded about how we grow the business, how we bring additional people on. And I would say there's always been three avenues uh, of growth in terms of headcount. One is to take your existing employees, continue to train them, mentor them, enable them to develop incremental skills. And if we could do that for every angle that we wanted, that's always our path, but you can't necessarily do that for everything. Then we'll, we'll go out and opportunistically hire people, both at the senior, middle, and junior level. Uh, to take us into a new geography or industry or, or some sub-product. And sometimes we feel that to get to some substance, we need larger organizations. So we've been an acquisitive firm. We've done about a dozen acquisitions over the last decade or so. And so uh, GCA was just a continuation of that. Having said that, it was a much, much larger transaction than we've ever done. It was about 500 uh, plus people. And there were a few things that intrigued us about that. I'd say first and foremost is they are not exclusively, but heavily involved in the technology industry. And, you know, technology today, if it's not the most important industry, it's always up there as one of the most important. While we do a lot of banking and analytical work in the technology space, we did not think we were as deep in that space as we'd like. So they brought a lot of subsector expertise in the technology area. And when we say technology, I mean, it does leak out into FinTech, health tech and industrial tech. And the second thing is Woolenhan Loki grew up as a U.S. firm. And while we were prior to this acquisition already a global in nature, we were still clearly, you know, I'd say U.S. centric first, Europe second in Asia. GCA has about maybe 50% of their businesses in Europe. So it meaningfully strengthened their size and substance in Europe. And in many regards, they were in locations we weren't, they were in subsectors we weren't, so there wasn't as much overlap. And additionally, they've got a very strong presence in Asia, specifically Japan, where we've had a relatively small presence. So we think it clearly rounded out our geographical uh, expansion as well. And so normally when you do um, acquisitions of people businesses, you know, it starts with culture and a cultural fit. Do the people get along? Do they want to work together? Is there not a lot of overlap? You want to picture, obviously, one plus one can be something greater than two and not less than two. And, and that was our attraction to the GCA. And so we've now completed the acquisition stage of it. 
we've generally started to integrate all of the employees, you know, one brand, uh, one email system, getting us all collected at the same offices, but there's still a lot to go. I mean, we're only a couple months into it to make sure we integrate all of the back office components, as well as to continue to let our clients know about our collective new capabilities. Great. Some very exciting things to look forward to. One thing that I think has caught everyone's attention in the past few months is the incredible wave of M&A activity that we've been seeing. How long do you foresee this behavior continuing? So, you know, been in the business, as I said before, several decades. So I guess I'll always start with the cautionary note. Historically, the world's economies have gone through some growth phases and then occasionally run into some recessions, downturns, et cetera. It has been you know, close to uh, almost a dozen years since there's been any true downturns of any length that was, you know, the great financial recession of uh, 2008 and 2009. Yes, we've had some hiccups, both with this pandemic and with other areas, but not a probably classical full-fledged, you know, downturn. So at, at some point, something's going to happen that you would think uh, would call. Having, you know, described a little bit about history, right now we see the marketplace. And when I say the marketplace, I'm kind of talking about the the core economies of the world, stock market, the bond market, investor confidence, availability of capital, new IPOs, VC, money, et cetera. All of these are still in positive trends. Almost everything that we see continues to say that notwithstanding interest rates may go up a bit, that the availability of capital is still there. And maybe people won't grow at the same pace that they did in the last year or two, but they still have growth expectations going forward. There's still a lot, a lot of money out there in the hands of corporations. You know, they've talked about more cash in the hands of corporations than they've ever seen. There's clearly more cash in the private equity world. There's uh, a lot of unspent cash in the SPAC world, the VC world. So all of these things we believe will continue for the foreseeable future to drive M&A uh, activity. And in the other you know, angle is a lot of people have done studies, which is the dollar value of M&A activity against the oh, dollar, doesn't matter what currency you use, but against market capitalization. And so we're still not necessarily at historic highs in terms of the percentage of market capitalization that is occurring in M&A activity. And the actual number of uh, M&A, you know, it, it's been growing the last year or two. I think the velocity of transactions has increased, but it's not like we're at 50% or 100% more total, total transactions than we've ever seen. And so all of this tells us we think this could be around for a while. Is that one more quarter, one more year, three more years? You know, don't know, but that's at least what we're seeing and listening when we talk to our clients. Great. And, you know, sort of on this note, we can see that certain sectors have really been boosted by the pandemic. And do you, is this concentration something that you feel will be sustained post-pandemic? So... I'm sure my percentage is off, but, you know, I might describe that 80% of companies for one reason or another are actually now doing better post-pandemic than pre-pandemic and 20% are not. So in some regards, the advent of increased technology to enhance your business, we probably would have gotten in five or 10 years anyways. The pandemic just accelerated it. Part of it is the mindset of human beings saying there's no way, you know, you have to do it this way. All of a sudden they were forced to radically change the way. And all of a sudden we've said, yes, we can't do it that way. The 20 percenters, if you might, basically had a business plan that made sense pre-pandemic. And now just the way the world works, where the economy is going, their business plan uh, may not work. They're either going to have to meaningfully change it or they are going to 
uh, not be able to be as successful uh, as they once were. And some of them clearly will go bankrupt and or disappear. So I think there are certain things that have structurally changed because of the pandemic and we're not going back to where we were before. And most businesses do need to evolve with the times. And even before the pandemic, we should do describe there were a lot of technology disruptors and whether it was what Amazon was doing to retail or what Airbnb or WeWorks was doing to real estate or what Rideshare was doing to the automotive industry, et cetera. These things have been occurring, you know, throughout the last several years, the last decade or two. And, and we continue to expect that technology will change how the world works, how consumers behave and how businesses either grow or fail. Definitely. And Given all of these developments, what surprised you the most about how DealFlow has evolved over the past couple of years? So I'd, I'd mentioned a few things. One has clearly been the increase, both in number and importance of the financial sponsor community. And by financial sponsors, we mean private equity firms or hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. So there's more and more of them. Uh, almost every single year, there's some uh, creation. They're in the business of doing deals. Unlike uh, strategic um, transactions, companies, uh, a lot of companies will never do a transaction, but the private equity firms, if you might, they're in the business of doing transactions. So that's, that's one thing that has occurred. The other is what I would call is the globalization of finance. Well, many things started probably in the United States or Western Europe. Finance is a global industry. Money moves all across the globe instantaneously. There's a stock market open at every time of the day. So, you know, that has occurred. A uh, third thing that has occurred is what I will call industry specialization. So it used to be whether you were a banker or a lawyer or accountant, did you know how to do the tasks that the client wanted was of the utmost importance. And maybe not that you had to be an expert in their particular industry. Most service industries now need to not only be able to contend they can take the task, but they have some unique skills in that industry. And industries, you know, start at a, a major level and then they become kind of micro level. There's really dozens and hundreds of sub-industry levels. So I think it's the kinds of new financial play, basically the globalization and industry specialization continue to be trends that I think have accelerated the importance of the way people do emanate uh, transactions or capital markets and that's likely to you know continue those trends for many many more years to come yep definitely some interesting changes that are happening right now and something else that has really changed the business landscape is the strong pipeline of companies that have chosen to go public through alternative methods such as SPACs or direct listings so in light of all of these developments that we've discussed how do you think investment banking itself will have to change in the coming years? So I mentioned a few, you know, long-term trends from uh, globalization to specialization. A few other things I would mention out there. Well, so far, it, at least in the, what we'll call non-balance sheet institutions, which is like what Hula Han Loki is. We don't do sales trading and research. Uh, we're not typically in the classical under, you know, roles. We, we're not a lender. Technology has commoditized certain of those other services from the pure I assist companies in selling, I assist companies in a restructuring, I assist companies in raising capital. Technology has not commoditized or eliminated the need for the human being. Uh, it's always possible. I mean, we've seen 
a lot of advances, but there's nothing on the forefront that we think is going to change that. However, technology has greatly increased the availability of information and our organization and others, we're all trying to figure out how to use that access to information to better do certain things. One is how can you source more opportunities? The historical way was the banker just called on companies directly. Well, is there a technology way? Is there, it's effectively data analytics. Is there a way to do some augmented availability to, you know, find additional companies? Cause there's literally, especially in the middle market, there are probably not only hundreds of thousands, but maybe millions of, of companies potentially out there. The next thing is how can you do things more efficiently? So when I got started in the industry, when you needed information, you went down to the local university, uh, their libraries got it, and now everything's available for the most part online. But how you use that information and how you could hopefully do a better job, maybe a faster job, maybe a more efficient job to get better results uh, for your is, I think, a, a wave that we're in the early stages that will continue to impact and hopefully make investment banking better and make better results uh, for clients. So it's, those are, those would be the trends I would expect in the next couple of years that will continue to be, you know, formative trends in the investment banking world. To wrap things up, is there any other advice that you'd like to give to university students? So a, a couple of things that say one, you know, enjoy what you do. The more you think of it as a job versus a career or a life experience, maybe you're in the wrong business, maybe you've joined the wrong company, et cetera. I know in the early years, most people don't know what they want to do. So spend some time, whether it's with the friends or colleagues or parents of your friends, find out what they do. Uh, try to get some sense of what you might be interested in. The whole internship type of programs that many companies have is a, a very good opportunity uh, to get some sense of you know, what you might be interested in. Once you start at, at an organization, I think also, you need to figure out by your own style, do you belong in a 10 person organization or a 10,000 person organization? Different people uh, will do better at different places. I mentioned earlier, be a good listener, but don't over listen at the failure to communicate. In today's kids coming out of the colleges and universities, they are clearly, I'd call it from a pure intellectual uh, and brain capacity standpoint are brighter than the previous generations. You know how to do things from a research standpoint and then a computer much, much than people 10, 20, 30 years ago. But I think society, we've lost a little in our communication skills. We've relied a little bit too much on the computing devices instead of our own voices. And in the service business, if that's where you end up, eventually you will cap out on how you can succeed if you don't know how to communicate what's ever in your brain. And that could be verbally or it could be in writing. Now, when we think about it, we're trying to give a, a client evaluation conclusion. It's not good enough just to do a good job. You might have to convince somebody that you came up with the right answer. They have to convince a, a, a seller that this is the right buyer or a buyer is the right seller or a lender to do this deal with the borrower or vice versa. So knowing when uh, to be able to communicate, when to have the right convictions, whether you're doing it with your colleagues, your peers, your bosses in your organization or the external world, I'd say it's the you know balance of those. And then I'd, I'd leave the final thought, which I've always said when I give a, an, an opening talk to all of our new recruits in here, it's figure out how to build a legacy. And by that, when you're 
when you're at an organization, especially a, a larger one, you, you know, do you work there for one year, three years, five years, and, you know, hopefully you got promoted and hopefully you got paid, uh, you know, fair amount of money, but were you just a normal employee and you were employed 2,336 or did you do something that made the organization better when you left, whether you left after two years or 20 years or 50 years, and it doesn't have to be something major. It doesn't have to be, I got the company into a new product line, or I was the one who was able to uh, in, invent some brand new technology. I mean, literally everything we do from, from benefits, the, how we uh, do research, how we communicate things, somebody has to come up with all these ideas. Somebody hopefully has to make it better. So I always encourage people to think about, are you building a legacy? What would you want that legacy to be? And what would you want people to think when you've left the organization? And if you succeeded that, hopefully you'll have a good career or wherever that might be. And not only will you uh, be better, but the organization that you're out is better. And those to me are the, the ultimate litmus test. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you very much and have a good uh, holiday season. Likewise. Thank you, Scott.